Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship. So glad that you're here this morning. And welcome to Westchester. Could not be more thrilled uh, that you are here uh, today. Uh, Why don't you tell the person on your right, I'm glad you made it. We're going to pray about the person on the left. Turn your Bible to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, uh, verse 13. It says, Now I am coming to you. This is Jesus praying to God the Father. And I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. So a few weeks ago, we started this uh, series, a new series, where we're just essentially just spending a few weeks together in the Word of God, gathered around John chapter 17, which is a prayer of Jesus. So we are eavesdropping in on his prayer. And you can learn a lot about somebody by the way they pray. You can tell about what they believe about God, what their theology is. You you can tell about uh, how they think about themselves. You you can tell uh, about how they feel about other people, about their situation. You can tell a lot about a person by listening in to their prayer. And that's what we're doing with Jesus. The first week and the first few verses, we saw that God is glorified when Jesus is glorified. And in the midst of all that glory, we receive eternal life. Last week, we saw that in this world, a disciple, which is you and I, a disciple knows God's name and knows God's word. And here's the main idea uh, for today. I heard this week that uh, our attention span, the average attention span now is only 16 minutes. I'm just going to be honest. It's going to be a lot longer than 16 minutes. Uh, But if yours is like, mine is like three minutes. I'm just going to give you the main point right here, and you don't have to pay attention for the rest of the time. You don't get good cell service in here. I don't know if you've noticed that, by the way. So there's not going to be a lot to do other than to listen to me. Here's the main idea for today. Uh, Jesus has left this world, but he has left us his joy. Jesus has left this world, but he has left us his joy. So it's Father's Day today. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. I'm a father. Uh, Jackson is nine years old, and Annabeth is six years old, and we have a little one on the way, a little girl. So I have two and uh, .3 kids. Uh, uh, and, and so we're celebrating Father's Day, and, and I don't know if you fathers have had this experience, but uh, uh, my kids sometimes talk about what they want to be when they grow up. Now, Jackson wants to be an astronaut. He has never wavered from that. He's never hesitated. He's never put his resume out online and just see if he's gotten any bites in any other industry. He has always wanted to be an, uh, an astronaut. Annabeth fluctuates between being a veterinarian and a teacher. That's kind of what she uh, wants to do. I don't know what they want to be necessarily, but I know what they are going to be. And what they are going to be is professional lobbyists. You know, um, they are great at getting their will uh, known and uh, getting me and their mother to bend uh, around their will. They're fantastic about it. They have different strategies. Those. Uh, Jackson's strategy is one of constant presence and repetition. Uh, so when he wants something, he will just ask over and over and over again. Then he gets to that point where it's like, no more asking. Like you ask one more time, you're going to get in trouble. And he'll back off for a while. You're thinking, well, how long does he back off? A couple of weeks, a couple of minutes. Uh, he will back off. 
and then he, uh, he will come back around, and usually he's very successful. He'll just wear you down in the best possible way. Jackson's in here today, and he's good at it. He knows it. This is not anything that uh, we haven't said to him already. Uh, so he has a great, bright future for him. Annabeth is a little bit more subtle about it. Uh, it's like she wakes up in the morning and has a checklist of what she wants us to do for her that day, and then she just kind of weaves our lives in and out of her checklist. She's very good at it as well, just uh, a different a different strategy. But the sweet spot for any child, really a sweet spot for any person, you remember this from when you were a child or if you have kids, um, the best place to be is when you are asking, uh, they are asking for what I or Amanda already want to give them. That's the best place to be. When you are asking for something that your parents already want to give you, or if you want a raise and your boss already wants to give you a raise, that's a real sweet spot, isn't it? Where you are asking for what somebody wants to give you I remember a while ago, I took Jackson to Los Angeles, and uh, we drove out there and saw the Grand Canyon, did that whole thing. We got to L.A., and uh, one of the things that we wanted to do in L.A. is just kind of play around the different sections and different parts, and one night we stopped and got In-N-Out Burger. Uh, Everybody familiar with In-N-Out Burger? They don't have them here in Houston. I don't know why God's favor is not on us right now, but um, In-N-Out Burger, it's a fast food place, but they just have a really delicious fast food hamburger. Now, I don't need a long line after church where you're telling me about the greatest hamburger that uh, you've ever had and why it's so much better than the one I'm talking about today. Like, I bless you. I affirm you. I don't disagree with you. I don't want to fight about it. I'm just saying that In-N-Out has a really good hamburger and french fries. And, uh, and so we went there, and it was awesome. It was a great burger, but even more than the burger, it was an amazing experience because it's in Southern California. So it's August, but we're there, and we're wearing the light jackets or the hooded sweatshirts, and they have the palm trees that actually make sense in their environment, not like here where we have them, and it just looks weird and awkward. So it was picturesque, and we're sitting outside, and we're enjoying this really great burger, really, really having a great time. So the next morning, we wake up in our hotel, and the first thing I think is, I want to eat at In-N-Out Burger again today, but um, you're not allowed to say that out loud. You know, you're just not, you know, I don't want to be the kind of person that's like, I'm going to eat fast food one day, and then I'm going to eat the exact same thing the very next day. I feel like that's a line you shouldn't cross as a person in this world, but I thought, so I, you know, I can't bring it up, but if I could get Jackson to ask to go, that's a win-win because I will get what I want and I will be a good father at the same time. So I just start doing like Jedi mind trick on him, you know, just trying to get him to ask to go back to In-N-Out Burger. I can't bring it up. I can't say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we went back to that exact same place and daddy got the exact same thing? And we sit at the exact same table because that's really what I want to do. Wouldn't that be great? I can't do that because I feel like that's a line that you shouldn't cross. But if I can just bring it up real casually, like, man, didn't we have a really great time last night? Me and you, father-son bonding. Remember when the sun was setting over that strip center and we were there? So I'm bringing these things up. So lunchtime comes around and I'm like, where do you want to eat? And I'm not sure I've ever prayed harder in my life. I'm just going to be honest. Lord Jesus, please let it be. And he said, I, I want to go back to the same place that we went yesterday. I'm like, well, let me think about it for a while. <laughs> no, I didn't. I plugged it into my GPS and it took us straight to the parking lot and, and it was beautiful because that's where, that's where you want to be, where what you are asking for is what that person wants to give you. And that's exactly what John chapter 17, verse 13 tells us. All of us in here today, we want joy. And what this passage of scripture is saying, what this verse is saying, is that Jesus wants you to have joy. Which is really a game changer. 
It's a game changer to know that the very thing that you and I want is the thing that God wants us to have. Because a lot of us, we're uh, in this mindset and we have this picture that God is playing this cosmic shell game with us. You know, the shell game where you got the ball on the table and then you put the cup over the ball and there's two identical cups and the person is moving it around and you have to try really hard and concentrate really hard and then they stop and then you have to guess which one the ball is under. Most of us, that's how we think about God and the things that we want. We have this one view of God when we don't want anything and that's usually a very accurate view and a very holy view and a very right view and then there's when we want something and we're not getting it and then we have this twisted view and many of us think that this is what God is doing with us. He, he, it's not off the table. Your request is not off the table. He's just not going to make it easy on you. And if you pray enough, if you work hard enough, if you concentrate enough, if you show up enough, then maybe when it stops, you'll get what you want. But this verse tells us that that's not what God does. The very thing that most of us want more than anything is joy. I mean, imagine if somebody could say to you, like, you could have all the joy you could ever want. You just won't get that one particular job. You'd be like, well, that's fine. The only reason I wanted that job is so that I could have joy. If somebody would say you could have more than enough joy in your life, but, um, you know, you're not going to be able to live in the same house forever like you dreamed. You'd be like, well, that's fine, because the only reason I wanted to live in that house is because I thought it assured me joy. And what Jesus is saying to us as we eavesdrop in on his prayer today is the thing that you and I want the most, he wants to give us. And notice what he says. He says, now I'm coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have, what kind of joy? My joy completed in them. You know, Jesus and joy have, have always been together. I mean, think about even how Jesus entered the world. He entered it with joy. When Gabriel, the angel, came to Mary to say to Mary, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. And she's like, well, I'm not even married that's impossible. And the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. There was a promise of joy in that message to her. When Mary is pregnant and Jesus is in her womb, she goes to visit her cousin named Elizabeth. And in Elizabeth's womb is John the Baptist. And when Mary and Jesus enter the same room with Elizabeth and John the Baptist, the scripture says, that John the Baptist, in his mother's womb, leapt with joy because Jesus, in his own mother's womb, had just walked in to the same house. When Jesus is born and the angels come to that hillside outside of Bethlehem to tell the shepherds, they come in this massive array of glory. And what's their message to them? Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. Jesus and joy have always gone together, and this is the way that God intends for you to live, with joy. It's amazing if you study this in the scripture, how, how it's present from beginning to end. It is so clear. And Jesus, notice that he says, now I'm coming to you. So he's talking to the Father. Now I'm coming to you, Father, and I speak these things in the world. So he's speaking them in the world, which means that when he's thinking about joy, he's not just thinking about joy all stored up for you one day in heaven. And you're just going to suffer, suffer, hate this life, hate this life, suffer, suffer, hate this life. But there's this big treasure pot of joy waiting on you when you die or when Jesus returns. No, he said, I speak these things into the world, in the world. So joy is possible in this world. And it's possible, why? Because it's his joy. 
When most of us think about joy, we're thinking about the, the kind of joy or happiness that comes when we organize our life in, in the most perfect way and we can control all of the outcomes and those outcomes lead to joy. So some of us in here, that's what your week has been like. You've been able to control most of the outcomes. Most of the outcomes have been very favorable. They led, led you to a place of happiness. And there's others in here, and it's the exact opposite. You didn't have any control of your situation. You didn't have any control of your life. And those outcomes have actually not been that favorable. But to either one, joy is possible. Some of you are like, well, you don't even know what I'm going through. You're right. I don't. And it doesn't matter because we're not talking about that kind of joy. We're talking about his joy and the joy of Christ in us is possible at all times in all situations. So he speaks these things in the world. Why? So they can have a little bit of joy. They can have bare minimum joy. No, so that they, the disciples and us who have followed them, may have my joy completed in them. That means to the full measure. It's a picture of a cup that's filled all the way to the top. We also know that God intends for us to live with joy because when Jesus leaves the disciples, when he is betrayed, arrested, crucified, resurrected, he appears to many witnesses, and then he ascends up into heaven to go and sit at the right hand of God. He didn't leave us alone. He gave us an incredible gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is referred to in the New Testament as the Spirit of Christ. So he didn't leave us alone. He left us with the Spirit. And Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, meaning if you are connected to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, then you're going to have the joy of Jesus in your life. Also, joy uh, helps us make uh, great decisions, helps us make good decisions. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 Jesus is telling a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and builds that field. So it was joy that caused this man to make a great decision. He found the treasure. He had a lot of joy. So he went and sold everything he had so he could buy the field that the treasure is in. And you know instinctively that you don't make great decisions when joy is not a part of your life. I mean, all, all of us, some of us are married. Uh, all of us have been single at one point in time, and probably all of us have been dumped at one point. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or a number on hands because that doesn't seem right. Uh, but we've all been dumped by somebody before. You're like, well, you know, circumstances, it was mutual. It wasn't mutual. They didn't want to hang out with you anymore. <laughs> was not them. It was you, right? We've all been dumped. And you know from that little window couple of hours, couple of days, couple of years after that happened that you don't make good decisions when joy is not a part of your life. Because does any of us look back to that little window and say, you know what, I really held my head up high. I had a lot of self-confidence. I'm really proud of the way that I walked through that. No, we have deep regret and shame, right? That's why the bo uh, boys to men are millionaires, because we all need 90s R&B to soothe us because we made bad decisions after a breakup, after a parting. Because you sent that last email and you just laid it all out on the line and it was met with no response. You showed up at their house. Bad idea, right? You kind of stalked them a little bit. Bad idea. You called them on the phone to talk it out one more time. And later on, you look back on that and you're like, man, what was I doing? Because we don't make great decisions when joy is not part of of our lives. That's, of course, is a silly um, illustration, but we all have serious illustrations, too, where joy has not been a part of our life, and we've reacted poorly out of that. 
We've reacted poorly to people that we care about. We've reacted poorly with decisions that we've made. Because we make good decisions when joy is a part of our life. And that's why God intends us to live with joy. He also intends us to live with joy uh, because of what he says to the disciples in just a chapter before. John chapter 16, verse 20. He says, I assure you, you will weep and wail, but the world will rejoice. So he's saying to the disciples, listen, bad news, guys. Bad, bad news. You're going to cry. And this is going to be really, really hard. And you will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And that's a promise for you today. Some of you are in the midst of such sorrow that you can't even imagine that that sorrow is going to turn to joy. But it will, because we're not talking about a joy that comes because that situation has just resolved itself. Or that situation magically doesn't matter anymore. Some things have happened to us that have caused sorrow that will matter for the rest of your life. But it can turn sorrow into joy because we're not talking about that kind of joy. We're talking about a joy that comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. It's his joy. We also know that God intended us to live with joy because he's actually going to hold us accountable if we don't. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 47. God is giving a a list of uh, you better watch out. Uh, to uh, the people of Israel because he's moving them into the promised land. But he said, if you guys don't uh, worship me, if you follow these false gods, if you worship idols, then there's going to be some bad things that are going to happen to you. And look at one of these things, uh, chapter 28, verse 47. Because you didn't serve the Lord your God with joy and a cheerful heart, even though you had an abundance of everything. So God says, I'm going to hold you accountable that you would serve me with joy and a cheerful heart because I have given, given you an abundance. I mean, think about the things that matter most to you in this world. Do you have just one of them or do you have more than one? I would guess most of us, whether you're rich or poor or in the middle, because we get to live in this great city, in this great country, in this great time, most of us have more than one of the things that matter most to us. We live in a time of, of abundance. We live with more than enough. And God is going to hold us accountable if even in the midst of all that abundance we refuse to serve him with a cheerful heart and a glad heart. God intends us to live with joy. And we all want joy. That's not a big revelation today. The problem is, is how do we keep it? it? It seems to be one of the more elusive things in this world. Four things I would love for you to write down. The enemies that undermine or steal our joy. Number one, ignorance of God's word. Ignorance of God's word. Turn to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19, verse 8. It says, the precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The commandment of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, than honey dripping from the comb. So look at what the word of God is said to do here. 
The precepts of the Lord or the word of the Lord is right, making the heart glad. The commandment of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. Then it says that the word of God is more desirable than gold or it's more desirable than money, than an abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey, than honey dripping from the comb. Now, I know this morning probably none of us are, you know, you're ready to go to lunch and, and I understand what time it is. It's, it's, uh, it's Father's Day and so you're going to get a dessert today, and, and as you're picturing about what dessert you're going to get or what dessert somebody's going to make you, honey is probably not the totality of what you're thinking. Maybe some really great fried bread with some honey on top. But none of us, none of us woke up this morning thinking, you know what I want a bunch of? I just want a bunch of honey, right? And you're just going to get it. And just, I mean, none, I don't think anybody just had honey for breakfast, right? So in our culture... Honey doesn't move us a lot. So when the word of God is compared to honey, you're like, oh, that's sweet. And I'm sure that mattered a lot to somebody some long time ago. But that's not really my language. But imagine if it said that the word of God was like hot Shipley's donuts. Now your mind is kind of getting fired up in the right direction. Or if, or if it said that the word of God is like a big piece of chocolate cake with a big glass of milk. You don't even like milk normally. You don't care about your bones. But man, next to a... Next to a big piece of chocolate cake, everybody, or chocolate chip cookie, those are my favorite. What if it said the word of God is like hot, undercooked chocolate chip cookies? You're like, yeah. And that's what it's saying here. But honey is not a big part of our culture, and so we just breeze right over it. But what it's saying is the word of God is as sweet as... And makes our heart as glad as dessert. So to ignore the word of God would be like ignoring dessert. And not ignoring it because you're watching your waistline or your cholesterol. But just ignoring it just because you didn't want to deal with it. Or you didn't want to make it a part of your life. It would be like ignoring dessert. But that's not how we think about the scripture, is it? No, we think of the scripture like vegetables. It's good for us. And it's necessary. But I'm not sure it tastes good, and it sure doesn't make my heart glad. But that's our mindset. The ordinances of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, they're like broccoli. Good for us, and weekly somebody's telling us that we ought to and we should. And we know we should. But that's not how the Bible communicates about the Bible. It's like dessert. It's, it's like honey. And to ignore God's word is to ignore something that will make your heart glad. So here's the litmus test for us today. If as you read and study the scripture, it's not sweet like dessert, then you're doing it wrong. If the word of God only is just ever vegetables to you then you're doing it wrong. And God forbid if you come here week in and week out and I give you the impression that this is broccoli and this is just what's good for you and it's bitter but it's important, then I'm doing it wrong. 
if after I'm done preaching, you don't have that thing in your thought, which in your mind, which is like, man, I want to go and I want to study that for myself, or I want to look at that. If you don't leave with that desire of, I want to search that out more. I want to, I want to find where my Bible is. I haven't brought it to church in a long time, but I want to find where it is and open it up and read it for myself. If you don't have that feeling when you leave, then I'm doing it wrong. Because the word of God is not vegetables. It's sweet like dessert, but it's also good for you. Can you imagine how wealthy somebody would be if they could figure that earthly equation out? And God already has. And so take a test, take an inventory. Are you lacking joy? Is it because you're ignoring God's word? Because you've thought it's vegetables. Because it's not. The second enemy that undermines or steals our joy is willful sin. Turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Just a few chapters before Jesus' prayer. Verse 10. Jesus speaking straight to his disciples. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I've spoken these things to you so that uh, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So essentially the same thing that he prays directly to the father, he has already said to his disciples. So the deal is, is that joy, his joy is connected to uh, remaining in his love. So if you want fullness of joy, complete joy, then you need to remain in the love of Christ. And how do you remain in the love of Christ? Well, he says it, if you keep my commands. Now, it doesn't mean that if you don't keep his commands, Jesus does not love you. But there is a remaining in his love that can only come through obedience. So if you do an inventory of your life and you realize that joy is not consistently present, then it may be because there's willful sin. Now, we all sin accidentally, and we're accountable for that sin. The scripture says that there's some things that are in our heart that are evil that just pop out. We didn't intend for them to pop out, but they just pop out, and we're accountable for that. But more than that, there's many times in my own life and maybe in yours where we know it's the wrong thing to do, but we do it anyways. We know we shouldn't watch that, but we do it anyways. We know we shouldn't send that email, but we do it anyway. We know we shouldn't say that about that person, but we do it anyway. We know we shouldn't cross this conversational line, but we do it anyway. We know we shouldn't flirt with that coworker at lunch, but our marriage is not really going well, and and I haven't felt that attention in a long time. We know we shouldn't do that, but we do it anyways. Those willful sins keep us from the joy of Christ. Number three, we have no part in the lost being found. An enemy that undermines or steals our joy. We have no part in the lost being found. Luke chapter 15. It says in verse 1, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the one lost one until he finds it when he has found it he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home he calls friends and neighbors together saying to them rejoice with me because i have found my lost sheep i tell you in the same way there will be more joy in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance? Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her women friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. So Jesus uses these two parables essentially to say that when you and I, the righteous, if you would consider yourself righteous today, when the righteous come to church one more time, heaven does not stop what it's doing. But if somebody today realizes, you know what, I need this. Not just I needed to be in this room, I, I, I need this to be in me. To realize I don't have Christ in my life and, and, and I need him. If one of us realized that today, and as everybody else is exiting, to go home, to move on, they just stopped into the access room and just walked in and said, I need this. And left today, a, a Christian, left today found, heaven would stop and celebrate. I'm going to be here next week, right here on this same stage. The throne room of heaven is not going to stand up and applaud. But if a sinner comes home, it stops and celebrates. And then it says in verse 11, Jesus goes on. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate and foolish living. And after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to eat his fill from the pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered and fat, the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, 
and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, that's what happens to us, though, when we're not a part of the lost being found. We're not a part of those who are far away coming home. We end up being like the older brother, the righteous and perfect and self-righteous older brother on the outside of the celebration looking in with our arms crossed. Jesus wasn't telling this parable to the sinners and the tax collectors gathered around him. He was aiming it over their heads to the Pharisees, the religious people in the background who had long forgotten the joy of watching sinners come home. And that's what happens to us. I don't know what it is about church, but you come once and you're super open-minded and you're welcoming and you're warm. But the more you come, the less those things are true about us. The more it becomes about the righteous doing righteous things over and over and over again. But the joy is seeing those who are far away coming home. And so as you take inventory this morning, if there's no joy, is it because what moves the heart of heaven no longer moves your heart? How sad for us if what causes heaven to have great joy and celebration does not do the same for us. And the last thing, the last enemy that undermines our joy, your name is not written in heaven. Your name is not written in heaven. Just a few pages to the left, Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out his disciples, 70 of his disciples. He's told them to preach the kingdom of God and tell people to repent because the kingdom is near and to pray for the sick and cast out demons. Luke chapter 10, verse 17, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So they're pumped. Jesus, what you told us to do, it actually worked. We're so excited. And he said, look, I, I've given you authority. Oh, excuse me. I've watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. Look, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will ever harm you. And so Jesus says, that's absolutely right. When you guys were out and you were preaching the kingdom and you were praying for the sick and when you were casting out demons, I got a vision of Satan falling from his exalted place down to a lower place. However... Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that's why some of us haven't had a consistent joy. It's not because you're a bad person. It's not because you've not been able to control your life exactly right. It's because your name is not written in heaven. What Jesus is saying is if you want joy, then you have to be, it's my joy that you want, and to have my joy, you have to be connected to me. That's what it means to have your name written in heaven. He's telling his disciples, you should be grateful and rejoice, not that you're able to cast out demons, but that you're connected to me, and because you're connected to me, you're connected to heaven. And so I just want to finish this morning by asking you a real simple question. Is your name written in heaven? There are certain religions and certain faiths that they feel like the way that they can make a name for themselves in heaven is by how they act, by the good things that they do, by the righteous acts that they do. They do a good, enough good stuff. They, they, they do this enough and that enough, and they'll make a name for themselves in heaven. And scripture says that's not it. 
way you have your name written in heaven is to be connected to Jesus by faith. It's just real simply you and I admitting our need today. I need Christ. And by faith saying, and I believe that he came to fill my need with his sinless life, sacrificial death, powerful resurrection. So if that's you today, don't try to skip to the to-do list. Do the first things first. Make sure your name is written in heaven. And as everyone leaves today, you just stop in the access room, which is right out these doors to my left and your right, and just say, I want to make sure my name is written in heaven. That's all you have to say. And the people in there, they know exactly where you've been because they were in that exact same situation once in their life too. And they can help you through the word of God, through prayer, leave today knowing you have eternal life. But Jesus, he's left this world. He's not left us alone. He's left us with his spirit. But he's also left us his joy. And it's a game changer when we realize the very thing that we want is the very thing that God wants to give us. Let's pray. So God, we receive what you want to give us today. Why don't you just take a second where you are and just a spirit of prayer to maybe differentiate the joy of Christ versus maybe the joy that you've been trying to get someplace else. Just in your own words, in your own heart, in your own mind as you pray, just I receive your joy, Jesus. Not the joy that the world gives, but your joy, I receive it today. God, I pray that we would just let it sink in that this is something that you want for us. That no one would be fooled today thinking that you're going to hide it from us when we leave. That it's going to be available. So give us eyes to see things in our life that erode and undermine the joy that you've given us. It's what we want and it's what you want to give us. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. I'll let you stand to your feet.